0: Turn, if you would, to the third chapter of the book of Hebrews. We actually started the third chapter a couple of weeks ago, and then last week I gave a really long introduction and barely got to the real lesson. Oh, well. That's the way it happens at times. Reminding ourselves, Hebrews is written to a group of believers Jewish converts to Christianity who are either contemplating or have slid back to either Judaism or just said goodbye to all of it. And today it speaks to us because there are many, 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 both in this room and acquaintances of people in this room who have at one time been committed to Christ, have gone to church, have done these Christianish things, and at some point just started drifting away. So the book of Hebrews has this structure to it at the beginning where we're going to talk about Jesus being better than. We talked about Jesus being better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses. And in between all of these, there are these warnings that keep popping up. The first one we saw in chapter 2 which was don't drift away. And we had a long discussion about the fact that so many people just get tired of doing christiany things and go do something else. And today's lesson and it actually started last week but we're going to get it, more of it today is the warning not to harden our hearts. And we talked last week about what that meant. As we say no to God, as we say no to His will, as when He tells us something, we just say, ah, never mind. The Bible says our hearts are hardened. That is, it becomes easier the next time to say no, and easier the next time, and the next time, and the next time. We talked about the fact that when Moses is talking to Pharaoh, and it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened, sometimes it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so the question is, which is it? And the answer is, yes. Because in Romans chapter 1, we're told that as we as fallen human beings go worshiping after the created order instead of the creator, God gives us over. It means that he lets us do what we wanted to do. But then we may find out that we don't really want to do what we wanted to do. But he gives us over and lets us suffer the consequences of our sin. So this chapter and into the next is talking about hardening our hearts, or rather not hardening our hearts, where we just become hardened to the truth of God. And the example that he gives is the nation of Israel. And that was the long introduction that we had last week, where the nation of Israel saw the miraculous things of God. I mean, let's face it, if we walked out and somebody separated the Mississippi River, you and I would be impressed, right? We would be. But that doesn't mean we'd follow God. Somehow, some way, we either begin to give some natural explanation for it, or we'd begin to get mad at God because he didn't do it for us every day. We believe that if I saw the miraculous events that biblical people saw, then I would be the greatest Christian in the world. And the truth is, the Jews saw all of this stuff. They had the promise of the land given to them. They had the plagues that forced the Egyptians to let them go. And they still, at every opportunity, said no. They hardened their hearts. And what the author of the book of Hebrews is going to tell us is don't be like that. Let's find a place to get started and get a running start into this. Let's start in verse seven of chapter three. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation, and they said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, and I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. This is quoting a psalm that is talking about Exodus, okay? Repeatedly, the people Rebelled against God, and finally God said, Okay, enough is enough. Every adult over the age of 20 is not going to enter the promised land, except two. We talked about this last week Caleb and Joshua, who had said, Yes, we can do this. So they wandered around for 40 years while an entire generation died out. They did not enter. The rest. What was the rest? Well, for the Jewish people, leaving the bondage of Egypt, rest was the promised land. The promise that was given to Abraham that you and your descendants will occupy all this land. You'll have good crops, you'll have good weather, you'll have good families. Life is going to be great if you follow my word. And if you don't, you won't. That was the rest that was promised to them. What is the rest that is promised to us today? This is actually an interesting discussion because commentaries have a lot of different views, but let me kind of put my arms around all of them and say yes to all of them, okay? We have talked in here about the whole idea of the word salvation, What does it mean to be saved, to be made right with God? And we've discussed the fact that there is a past tense of this. You are saved, which we call justification. But there's also a present tense that the scripture uses: You are being saved, which is the process of sanctification, where God works out in you what he has put in you. But there is also a future part of it, which we refer to as glorification, where you and I go to heaven and this last remnant of sin is finally gotten rid of. Thank you. Okay? So there is a past, there is a present, and there is a future. And the same applies to the word rest. I concluded last week's lesson, I mean, like, in the last couple of sentences, making a very tiny complaint, just a tiny complaint, that I'm exhausted, okay? We are opening our play next week, and I will be doing play stuff every night this week. Somebody asked me, well, what time is it over? I said, when we're done. (laughs) It's exhausting. But, but... Yeah, the pay is really good. <laughs> but when the scripture talks about rest, it is talking about the fact that you and I struggle to be right with God. If you look at every every religion, ever created by man, that is, those not created by God, the one. If you look at every religion ever created by man, there is this effort to do enough to be right with God. If only I can do one more thing, just one more, just one more, and it's exhausting. And Christ comes and says, forget all of that. I did Everything for you. Just rest in me. That is the rest that is promised to us. But like salvation, there is a past. We have been made right with God. We can rest in that. We are being sanctified. And you think, well, that takes work. Well, yeah, it does but we're resting in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us into what God would have us to be. That's rest. And then we know that there will be a time where this struggle that we have every day with sin will be over, and that will be really restful. That is the rest that has been promised to us. So let's keep reading. Take care brothers this is verse 12 lest there be any of you any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living god but exhort one another day every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the, firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That phrase, that reference to Psalm, actually gets repeated multiple times in this chapter. Let's tear this apart one by word by word. Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart. Hmm. Obviously, right? That's those people out there. That wouldn't be us. I hinted last week that in chapter 6, we're going to get into a long discussion, because you're not going to let me avoid it, about whether or not we can lose our salvation. Suffice it to say that our church teaches, and I believe, that you cannot lose your salvation. You just can't. Because God who started will complete the good work in you. Having said that, you can live a miserable life. You just can You can say no to God and not experience the peace that God wants to give you. Or it is possible that you could be sitting in here having gone through the motions of being a Christian and not really be a Christian. So I'm going to give the warning that the author of the book of Hebrews gives us, which is, do any of us have an evil, unbelieving heart that is leading us To fall away. What is the definition of an evil, unbelieving heart? One that leads you away from the things of God. It's quite simple. I think of evil as somebody like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, evil, wicked people. But the reality is, evil is that which drives us away from God. You may not kill anybody. You may not do anything nasty. You're just not following after God. And that is an evil, unbelieving heart. Wait a minute. I'm a nice person. In the eyes of the world, you may be a perfectly nice person. And I'm glad you're a nice person. I like nice people. But you know what? Being a nice person is not going to get you into heaven. You see, at different times in history, it has been beneficial or not beneficial to be in a community of believers. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're a Jew at this time, if you are a Christian in the 1950s, or anybody in the 1950s, it would behoove you to go to church. I've told you before, you know, my dad sold life insurance all of his life, and he gave me all of these books to read about being a good salesman, and I never followed any of it. And it just came out and said, you know, if you're going to be a good salesman in a community, you need to join the biggest church in town so you'll have contacts, right? It was a good thing to do. But that doesn't mean you're following Christ. It's the old joke. Just because you live in a garage doesn't mean you're a car. Just because you attend this church doesn't mean that you are following after Christ. There are those with evil and unbelieving hearts who just appear like you and me. They do. I don't like saying this. I didn't write this. I don't even like teaching it. It just is the Word of God. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I like that phrase, the living God. You ever seen an unliving God? You actually have. You may have traveled to some foreign country where there were good old-fashioned idols standing there, and you go, wow, you may have walked out the parking lot somebody, and seen somebody's idol sitting there in the parking lot. <laughs> you may have driven by their home and seen somebody's idol. You may have seen somebody's children, grandchildren. You may have seen somebody's quest for power. You may have seen something that was driving them away from a believing heart. The author wanted us to make sure we understood. We're not talking about those gods. We're talking about the living God. How many living gods are there? One. Now, we know that there are spiritual beings There's good ones called angels, there's bad ones called demons, there's a head of the bad ones called the devil, and they have power and influence, and there are those who will act as if those things are God. There's only one God, the living God, and it's like we've said repeatedly in this class, what he's telling them in the book of Hebrews, if you do walk away from this, what are you walking to? Because there is no plan B. But here comes the observation to all of us. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The active verb in this is exhort. What does that mean? Here's the question. If you, heaven forbid, if you started drifting away, if you started hardening your heart, is there someone in your life who's going to walk up beside you, whack you on the side of the head, and tell you to stop it? Now, that may not be the best approach, it may just be walking up, putting their arm around you, and telling you to stop it. Is there someone in your life who is willing, able, to do that? Question number two. Is there anyone in your life that you would do that to? This actually sounds real easy on one level. I see you messing up, and I walk up to you and the most loving fashion in the world, say, don't do that. But in reality, in our modern age, this is horribly difficult. Go over to the book of Proverbs, and there's all these verses about reproving someone, telling someone they're going the wrong way, and how wonderful that is to have a friend who will do that for you. But in our modern age, we are so stubborn that if somebody came up to us and said, you know, you're going the wrong way, we would look at them and we would go, who are you to tell me what to do? As if somehow that ends the argument. But you know what? If we don't have someone in our life that can do that, if we are not able to do that in the lives of others, and I might add, let's throw in all these warnings about, you know, speaking the truth in love and all of that. The physical two-by-four is probably not the best answer. Standing up in a public meeting, calling them out, is probably not the right answer. But do we... Never, ever take the opportunity, not the opportunity, because it's not fun. One of my general rules is if you think it's fun, don't do it, (laughs) reproving someone. If you're enjoying it, don't do it. (laughs) I remember a situation at work where a young lady and a young man, the young man was married, and he started spending more time with the young lady than he ought to have. And he eventually left his wife for this young lady. And I'm sitting here thinking, someone, someone should have walked up to her, some woman, and said, don't do that. And someone should have walked up to him and said, don't do that but they weren't believers, and it's a work environment. You know, you have all these... In the church, we are called to help one another. We are family. We are to exhort one another. Why? Exhort one another every day. Here's a hard question. How often are we supposed to do this? (laughs) Every day. Let me tell you the basic problem. If you are having trouble with your spouse and you go to a marriage counselor, I don't know any statistics about this, but I'm just gonna make an observation. The odds are if you wait until you go to the marriage counselor, you've already waited too long. We need to be involved in the lives of other people so that on a day-to-day basis we can say, that probably wasn't the best way to handle that situation. Before their hearts are hardened where they just don't have any interest in repentance. Once again, speak the truth in love, exhort in love, if there's no love, don't do it, okay? Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, as long as the sun is shining, as long as you have breath in your lungs, as long as you can do it today. Don't do it tomorrow. Do it today. Just do it. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." You know, a couple of years ago, they started a series of, what would you call them? Anti-smoking commercials. And in the anti-smoking commercials, they showed the lungs of the person who had been smoking all their life. They'd showed them on the ventilator. They showed them dying of cancer. They showed the reality of that. Why? Because for many, many years, on television until we got rid of it, and in print forever, we showed the cool guy in the world smoking the cigarette. Aren't I cool because I have this smoking thing in my hand? And they Turn that around by having the anti smoking commercials. Sin is very attractive. You don't want to hear that, but you know it's true. If it wasn't attractive, people wouldn't go running after it so much. At the time, at the moment, that you are looking at the temptation, the temptation is attractive. It is attractive to you. That thing that you want looks good. But that is the deceitfulness of sin. We need to tell people, we need to tell people the anti-sin commercial, which is it's deceitful. You think that engaging in that activity is going to give your life fulfillment. It's not. You think engaging in that sin is going to make you a better person. It's not. You think that it's going to give you pleasure, glory, honor, money, whatever it is. And it's not. It is the deceitfulness of sin. We could have the longest discussion imaginable about this topic. I could bring in a video screen, and we could start watching TV commercials off of TV shows being shown right now. Or I could show you the shows that are being displayed right now. And you would begin to see, oh yes, that looks fun. Oh yes, that looks exciting. Oh yes, that looks cool. Oh yes, that looks like that would give me meaning and purpose in life. It's a lie. It's all a lie. When we do the marriage mentoring with the young couples, the last lesson we do is always about sex. And I tell them, the majority of what you and I know about sex, we learn from watching TV or movies, let's face it, that's where people learn it. And all of that is a lie, it is, wait a minute. There's got to be some... Well, maybe there's some... I'm, no, it's all a lie. But that's where we learn. Now, we're going to exhort one another daily to protect each other from the deceitfulness of sin. You see, this is the way it works. I am sitting here fixated on my current temptation This is what I want right now. You, the outside observer looking in, think that's the stupidest thing in the world. Now, you need to come alongside me and tell me, maybe not using the words, that's the stupidest thing in the world, but begin to tell me what the true cost of going down that path will be. I've told you there's a well-known pastor, and he wrote down a list. If I left my wife and had an affair, these would be the consequences. And he typed it up, and he put it on his desk right there so that he would continually be made aware of the consequences of that particular sin. Guess what? Every sin has that list. They all do. And we need to encourage one another by being that outside observer who looks at it and says, that doesn't work. This reminds me of the story in the picture in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it begins with, why do you worry about the speck in your brother's eye when you have the two by four in your own eye? And we look at that and we think, well, what that means is, I'm not supposed to judge other people, which he goes on to talk about. But the verse goes on to say, take that two by four out of your eye so that you can help your brother with the speck. At the end of the day, we need to help the brother. And who better to help the brother than the one who realized how hard it was to get the two by four out of their own eye? So when we exhort one another in love we go to them and say I know the struggle that you're having I know the problem but let me tell you there's nothing at the end of that except disaster that's what we need to be able to do to each other continually day by day and I might add I don't think we're very good at that You know why? I don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear it. I've said before, I think we've kind of reached this agreement. I won't remind you of your sins if you don't remind me of mine. And we're all happy. We're all happy. And we're all happy stuck in the deceitfulness of sin. And what does that deceitfulness lead lead to? A hardened heart. None of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It looks good, it's deceitful. You give in to it because it looks good, and that hardening process continues. And let me just add, just in case you want to get too discouraged, the Holy Spirit can soften your heart. He can. He can and he will. But the harder your heart gets, the more you are reluctant to listen to your fellow Christian, the more you are reluctant to listen to the Holy Spirit, and the harder and harder it gets. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have come to share in Christ. That's the promise that we have. Our association with Christ. That is the antidote to the hardening, to the deceitfulness of sin, is that relationship to Christ, if we hold to that relationship. If we begin to think that's not that important, if we begin to think, well... Something else is important. Then I lose confidence in my relationship with Christ and I start drifting away. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What is a rebellion? You know, we t- think about the American Revolution as a rebellion, sort of. We think about the French Revolution as a rebellion. We talk about this and that political event as a rebellion. A rebellion is telling the legitimate authority no. Who's the legitimate authority? God. When you tell God no, you are living a life of rebellion. It's really as simple as that. Now, that grandkid of mine is living a life of rebellion. He's giving his mother a horrible time. Well, maybe he is and maybe he's not. I don't know. But rebellion is when we say no to the legitimate authority of God in our lives to tell us what to do. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, When you hear his voice. How do we hear his voice? Well, we have the word that is given to us, and we have the Holy Spirit taking that word and telling us how to apply it to our lives. And when he tells us how to apply that word to his life, and we say no, we are in rebellion at that point. And that rebellion produces a hardened heart. The hardened heart produces rebellion. The rebellion produces a hardened heart. You see the the pattern here, right? Let's keep going. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let me make sure you understand something. All those people that came out of Egypt on the journey to the promised land, every one of those people, they were not kept out of the promised land because God wasn't strong enough to let them in. It wasn't like the room will only hold 20 people and there's 50 of you, 30 of you have to stay. There was no shortage, there was no lack on God's part of his ability to take them all into the promised land. What kept them out of the promised land was their unbelief, their non-faith. That's what kept them out. There was nothing wrong with God. There was no lack in God's ability. There was no lack in God's strength. It was the people's unbelief that kept them out. Some famous philosopher, modern philosophers, was asked the question, What would you ask if you showed up at the pearly gates after you died? And he said, I didn't believe because there wasn't enough evidence. The scripture tells us there is enough evidence, but because of our unbelief, because of our lack of faith, because that unbelief produces a hardened heart, we are unable to enter the rest that God has promised for us. It's not because of a shortage in God's power. Yes, Uh-huh. In the book of Romans, where he talks about the nation of Israel, he makes the odd comment that not everyone who is a descendant of Abraham is of Abraham meaning that not everyone who is biologically connected is spiritually connected by faith with the faith that Abraham had toward God. In Galatians, we're told that we, when we believe in God, are children of Abraham because we share the faith that Abraham had in the promises of God. Is that the answer to your question? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no idea. His question is, all those people who died in the wilderness, are all of them not saved? Okay? And my question, answer is, I don't know. Because you see, Moses died out there too. <laughs> yeah, you separated him from the group. Okay? Okay? It's an interesting phenomena, okay? When the community of believers, in this case, the community of Jews wandering around the wilderness, when some group of it is in rebellion against God and the rest of the group doesn't necessarily stand up to that group, we all suffer the consequences, okay? A church whose leadership runs amok The church will suffer for it. Does that mean everybody in the church is not saved? No. Does it mean that some of the people in the church are not saved? Probably. I have no idea what percentage of the Israelites believed, but they followed the leadership and were led astray, versus those who just didn't believe to begin with. I have no idea. I can't answer that question. It would be presumptuous, I think, to say, every one of them is in hell today. But we also know that if you were under the age of 20, it And we know that some of them didn't believe. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> so, I don't know. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, Stop. Right there. The promise of salvation is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, we could have a long fruitless discussion about election and predestination and all that stuff. We're not gonna do it. Why? Because those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ Will be saved. That's the promise that's given to us. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, who was a big fan of election, he said, God save the elect and then elect some more. The promise of salvation is those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved to the jews being brought out of captivity to follow god to the promised land the promise is be obedient to my word and i will take you to that land the promise was valid the promise was efficacious it was effective it would accomplish its purpose Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Huh. Let us fear. This book is probably, no, it is, written. To believers, okay? Once again, we'll have some discussion about people falling away and all that stuff. He's looking at the believers in the eye and telling them to fear. Perfect love casts out fear, doesn't it? Why do we even worry about that kind of thing? Because the author wants you and I to be aware of the fact that this is important stuff. We've had lessons in here about the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as we see in the book of Proverbs. We've talked about that at length. Fear of God is a respect and awe that makes us aware that he is God and we're not, that he is God and he has the right, and that at some point I could walk away from that. The fear of God says, do what God would have you to do, follow after God, lest you be like those whose bones were in the wilderness because they did not follow the commands of God. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Hmm. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You go and speak to just a group of random people collected off the streets. What I'm about to say applies to this group too, but I'm gonna be nice. We're gonna pretend that we all accepted Christ by faith. But if you take a random group of people off the street and put them in this room and start sharing the gospel with them, every one of them, if they understand the English language, if their ears are mechanically working correctly, if the body functions and if they stay awake, they are hearing the same message. Every one of them is hearing the same words. I've had people ask me before, there are a group of biblical scholars who know the Bible better than you and I ever could in our lives as far as the languages and the meanings of these words. And they are totally unbelievers. They don't believe a word of it. It's just like a Shakespeare scholar studying Shakespeare. It is an exercise. So what is the difference? Why can I share the gospel And everybody has the ears, everybody understands the language, and they do not respond. What's the difference? Am I just a really bad teacher? Well, I could be. I'll grant that. But that's not the problem. If you don't take what is heard and combine it with faith, it's just vibrations in your eardrum is all it is. The difference is faith. The nation of Israel, well, they weren't the nation of Israel yet, but the Jews come out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, they're given the Ten Commandments, they're They're told to do it, and good things will happen. If you don't do it, bad things will happen. You're gonna get the promised land, they're given a sacrificial system that they're supposed to, to complete, You know, every year you'd give this sacrifice. Whenever you do this thing bad, you do this. When you do this, I mean, there's blood everywhere. It's a sacrificial system. We'll talk about that in lessons to come. And by the time we get to the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophets are saying, stop it with the stupid sacrifices. Why are they saying that when God told them to do it? The prophets are telling them to stop it because they're doing it without faith. The sacrificial system, I'm going on a limb here, the sacrificial system was effective, but only if it was done by faith. What saved Abraham? Faith. What saves you and me today? Faith. What saved that guy in ancient Israel, who took his sacrifice by faith and gave it to God. What saved him was the by faith. In the wilderness, they did not by faith enter the land that God had promised them. And that was the problem. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us fear, lest any of us should seem to have failed to meet you. For good news came to us just as to them. They received the gospel as such in their dispensation. We received the gospel. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. By faith. For we who have believed entered that rest As he has said, as I swore on my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Why did God rest on the seventh day? Do you think God was tired? Do you think it was just like, I've been creating things all week, I have been shoveling all week. I have been doing things, and I am just bone tired. I think I'll rest. No, I don't think he was tired at all. I don't even know what the word tired would mean in relationship to God. He rested to show us what we were to do in him. Calvin talks about the Sabbath rest being our entire lives, where we have ceased to struggle, to struggle to enter in on our own merits. We've stopped. We have rest because of what he has done. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Wait a minute, disobedience. Didn't he just say it was lack of faith that produced their inability to enter? And now here he's talking about disobedience. Disobedience, it's a simple word, right? Not obeying. Why did they not obey? Because they didn't have faith. What faith did they lack? The deceitfulness of sin blinded them to the fact that it was better to do things God's way. You know, you go tell somebody you ought to do this, and you're pretty clever. You're not just clever, you have experience. You don't have just experience, you know what the outcome is. You're at a fork in the road, and they're asking you for directions, and you know that one mile down that path, the road ends into a bottomless chasm, and it's dark, and it's foggy, and they're not going to see it. And you tell them, do not go that way. And they go, thanks, and they hop in their car, and they go that way. Why? Disobedience. Why? A lack of faith. Why? Because they do not believe that you have their best interest in mind. You know what? If you ask me, a human being, for advice, I hate to tell you this, but I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. I've been wrong a lot. But when God says, thou shalt and thou shalt not, he's not wrong. He has created a universe in which certain things work and certain things don't work. And if you go down the path of those things that don't work, a mile down the road, in the dark and in the fog, there's the chasm. Are we lost because we are disobedient? Or are we lost because we have no faith? The answer is yes. They're connected. Always, always. Your belief will drive your actions. And I might add, your actions will drive your belief. And your belief will drive your actions. And your actions will drive... And it's, That's the way God has constructed the universe. Why did they not enter the rest? Because they were disobedient. Why were they disobedient? Because they had no faith. Why did they have no faith? Because they had hardened their hearts through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I don't want you ever, ever thinking that all this is about how hard-hearted the Jews were. No. They're just like you and me and our present generation. Just like us. Why do we have difficulties because we're not obedient to the word of God. Why are we not obedient to the word of God? Because we lack faith that God has our best interest in mind. Why do we lack faith? Because we have hardened hearts because of the deceitfulness of sin. What the author of the book of Hebrews is telling them is don't go down that path. We'll pick up right here in the next lesson. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Work in us to overcome our lack of faith and our disobedience. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.